This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. One of the indicators of how well we're doing in health and biomedical research in Canada is looking at major prizes such as the Gardner or the Nobel awarded to Canadian researchers for extraordinary work accomplishments. But over the years, there's been a decline in the number of Canadians winning these important prizes. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. David Naylor, who has analyzed this trend in an article he co-authored. Dr. David Naylor is Professor of Medicine and former President of the University of Toronto. He has a long-standing interest in science policy and Canada's relative performance. I've reached him in Toronto. Welcome, David. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Good to chat, Diane. So glad you're here with us today. You wrote this analysis article with Dr. Robert Rettelmeyer. Why did you want to write this article? That's it's a long-standing obsession on my part, and that is how well Canada does on the world stage in terms of research generally, and of course, uh, a special interest in medical science and health research on my part. And there are many ways to measure that. You can you can look at highly cited publications. You can look at impact on practice. Uh, you can you can look at uh, total output, the tonnage factor, where we actually do pretty well on a population basis. But certainly one of the other indicators that people take seriously is whether or not the work is at such a high impact uh, that it actually triggers uh, recognition with some of the major prizes. Uh, There are major prizes in all kinds of areas, of course, but the ones that tend to get the the biggest attention uh, are those such as the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Chemistry or similar pinnacle prizes that recognize pretty groundbreaking work. Now, clinical research is a little less recognized in that regard, but uh, these are still important indicators of the health of the upstream scientific enterprise and to some extent the translational enterprise. So we wanted to have a look at them and see how Canada was doing. So what kind of awards did you examine and over what time span? So we had a look at basically four awards. Um, What we did was we focused on the Gairdner Prize, which is Canada's I would say, most prestigious international prize. It's one of those uh, pinnacle awards now recognized globally as uh, uh, very rigorously adjudicated and important in terms of picking out, often early, uh, the the most important medical discoveries. So we started with it, and it began its uh, awards in 1959. We tracked it right through to 2017. But then we also used the Gairdner as a lens to look at how the Gairdner winners did when it came to winning other major prizes and to see within the Gairdner cohort how many Canadians there were versus international awardees. So the other prizes were ones that are commonly seen as part of a sort of uh, big four. One is, uh, of course, the Nobel Prize. It's been given since 1900. And really over the last few decades, a lot of the biomedical discovery 
has been recognized not only in medicine, but also in chemistry. So we looked at both the, the Physiology or Medicine Prize and the Chemistry Prize uh, given out by uh, the folks on the Nobel Committees. We also looked at an award that's been given since 1946, and that is the Lasker Award. And it's important to remember there's two Laskers. It's one of the few that actually explicitly recognizes clinical research. There is the Albert Lasker Basic Medical Research Award, but also the Lasker Debicki Clinical Research Award. And uh, more than a few of those folks have gone on to win Nobel. So it's a, it's a very uh, elite prize for clinical research. And uh, then there is the Louisa Gross Horowitz Award, also based in America, like the Lasker. It's tied closely to Columbia University. It's only been around since 1967 and has a special interest in the biochemistry area. But it has had a very fine uh, reputation built over the, over the course of uh, the past uh, five decades. Really, almost from the outset, was seen as uh, heavily adjudicated uh, towards uh, really pinnacle excellence, and uh, many Horowitz uh, Prize winners have actually gone on to win Nobel. So that was the set of prizes we examined, starting with the Gairdner and tracking backwards and forwards. So let's focus on the Gairdner for a minute as, as Canada's uh, award. So how are award winners chosen um, for that particular prize? Well, it turns out to be part of the story, Diane. The in the early days, this was very much a Toronto award founded by a visionary businessman, uh, and uh, his goal was to recognize excellent research. Now, early on, tended to focus on uh, rheumatic and cardiovascular disease and had a sort of informal adjudication. I would say to the great credit of all those involved, including uh, Mr. Gardner, uh, even from the early days, they did recognize international stars and uh, had a line of sight uh, early on work that could go on to be recognized by a Nobel or other pinnacle prize. Uh, over time, the, the adjudication became more rigorous and fell into a pattern where there was a sort of screening committee composed of Canadian medical scientists and health researchers, and then an international panel that had uh, often Nobel laureates and other major prize winners plus uh, uh, medical leaders that would do the final decision based on lists generated by the screening committee as to who would win the prize in any year. But I would emphasize that it really wasn't until 1991 that the first international member was added to that committee and only relatively more recently has become a thoroughly international committee with the kind of firepower you might see, uh, uh, say, in the Nobel Committee or some of these other uh, very rigorous groups. So um, it's now an extremely tough process. I had the privilege of sitting on the committee for six years, and it was daunting. I was surrounded by Nobel laureates and multi-prize winners and deans of medicine from Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge. And it felt like a complete imposter at the table. <laughs> but it really was a brain spa to sit there as we poured through remarkable files of amazing researchers from around the world and tried to figure out who would get a Gairdner Prize. So you were comparing, sort of looking at who had received the Gairdner Prize and then looked at whether they'd received other prizes in this, in this analysis and looked at the trend over time. So what did you actually discover? So we came into this with a view that the Gairdner Prize winners from who had done their work in Canada 
had decreased in numbers over time. That was our suspicion. That's what the community was saying. And there was a little narrative, uh, fueled perhaps by some folks who, like me, are a little long in the tooth, that said uh, we had a golden age. We lost this golden age of Canadian medical research. And, of course, many dark musings as to why that might be happening. And we thought it was timely to have a look at this uh, narrative because uh, as one examined this sort of on the surface, it, it didn't seem as though we'd lost our way. We, we continued to be doing some very fine work, but we just weren't winning the biggest prizes. So we looked back and we found that the number of Canadians winning Gardner Prizes had indeed declined significantly over time. But then this comes to the question of whether that meant that quality had also declined. Well, one way to measure quality is to look at all the other prizes, both backwards and forwards. And we did that, and we found no evidence based on performance in other major prizes, the ones I described earlier, that quality had declined. That didn't make sense unless you considered the more likely hypothesis, which is that in the early days, before the committee really became well-established and the process became regularized and had strong global input before the prize achieved its current enormous stature, there might have been a little bit of a, of a home ice bias, a home, <laughs> home uh, advantage, and a little bit of a tendency to pick out Canadians who would, of course, uh, be uh, more in the line of sight of a committee that uh, had uh, medical scientists from Canada screening, but also a selection, final selection committee that had a, a preponderance of Canadians. So I think all that had happened here is that um, that home ice advantage uh, attenuated over time as the prize became very well established. That's the explanation. Um, but there is, I, I would argue, uh, you know, grounds to be concerned uh, about why this performance has been pretty uneven uh, over time, and perhaps we could turn to that later. So actually, let's go to that now. What do you think's going on? Well, I, I have to say that when when you look at the very uh, dramatic differences, you know, one Canadian Nobel Prize in this period uh, versus, you know, a, a much higher number for the individuals who were uh, outside uh, Canada and did their work elsewhere. Basically, one of 47 uh, Gairdner winners uh, based in Canada went on to a Nobel Prize. The international was 85 out of 302 who went on to a prize, and uh, four more had had a prize bef Nobel Prize before they got a Gairdner. So these are massive differences in proportion and similar differences for all the other prizes. And I, I think we have had a problem in this country, not so much of nominating our best and brightest, but actually building the kind of sustainable supports and the, the, the spires of excellence that will really enable our best and brightest to compete with uh, complete parity on the global stage. And obviously you can make the argument that, that this is a small country in population terms. And it's certainly the case that the traditional powerhouses, you know, the U.S., the U.K., Japan, to some extent Germany, uh, still do very well. But when you look at Australia, 
when it comes to Nobels and medicine, um, they outperform us. Uh, when you look at countries like Switzerland, you see a staggeringly higher rate of highly cited uh, papers produced in all areas of science on a population basis. The comparisons to other small countries suggest to me and, and to my co-author that Canada still hasn't got the commitment to excellence and sustained funding apparatus that will make sure that we can compete effectively over time uh, with other nations, and particularly with our peer nations that are also somewhat smaller in population. So I, I personally, although it's you know, very hard to go directly to that, from an analysis of prizes, but my own surmise is that we actually need to continue to review and reconsider how we support science in this country, particularly health research, uh, in my view, needs a major funding boost. And the last point I'd make in support of that, Diane, is this. We had a wonderful budget last year where uh, science and research uh, had a major infusion of funds, and I think we're all grateful to the Government of Canada for taking that step. But when you look south of the border in what was supposedly a hostile climate to science, the National Institutes of Health got major boosts. President Trump wanted to cut the budget two years in a row. Congress and the Senate quietly, completely overturned that. They went from cuts to major increases. They reversed the president's recommendation and voted increases last year of $2 billion base and $2 billion more this year for $4 billion base increase. Divide by 10 for population, that's the equivalent of $400 million of base increase in funding for, for the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, which is nothing like what has been committed to CIHR even in this uh, historic budget that we just had. And that was starting from a base that was already a multiple higher on a per capita basis than what CHR has. So the long and short of it is we need to really get our act together with all the different pots of money that are provided federally and provincially. We need a team Canada strategy in all areas of science. But much as I hate to say it because it sounds like uh, the usual advocacy, but I'm going to say it anyway, we don't support research financially in this country to the level we need to support it if we're to compete and win on the world stage. That is very concerning. I can see I see that, that you're very worried about this and our opportunities in the future because of funding. There's been a lot of talk, actually, about where that type of funding should be allocated. A lot of concern about whether it should be allocated at the uh, bench research, clinical research. Do you have any thoughts on that? to uh, increase our profile on the world stage and our impact? I, I do. I, I think if you look at the clinical medicine and clinical research area, even though the funding seems fairly skimpy, we actually uh, perform extremely well in terms of highly cited papers and uh, impact on practice. So we actually have substantial strength there, and it should certainly be reinforced. But what, where I think the challenges lie are more in the area of translation. Uh, we have very fine basic scientists, but we've, we've got to figure out uh, the knack of moving the science along towards application and to explore implications for uh, broadly for biology and for human health and illness. And 
That speaks to things like making sure we support clinician scientists or clinician researchers. Uh, it speaks to the fact that we need to have really great data aggregation in this era of precision medicine. And you know, I sometimes think that if we could get our act together and focus, begin to characterize uh, patients and populations in much more detail, not using not just you know, the genomic uh, markers that people talk about, but a range of inputs, and put that together with the strength in this country of the evaluative sciences and clinical research and epidemiology, we would have a remarkable contribution to make to the world. I think of it as evidence-based precision medicine. And it's that translational element uh, that sees basic translational and clinical scientists working together to make sense of health and illness that I believe is uh, our potential advantage and where perhaps if we invested in focus, we could really uh, steal a march on the rest of the world. That's a very exciting prospect. Let's say people listening to this, policymakers, uh, could implement what you've talked about. What kind of lag time would there be before we might see a change in, I mean, these awards often reward many, many years of effort by the winners. Um, what kind of lag time do you, did you anticipate before you would see results on the world stage? 10 to 12 years. Okay. But, Which is not that much, long. Much, not that long, but much more importantly, Diane, if you think about you know, trying to go from some of the shotgun therapies where we do brilliant randomized trials, we show a significant benefit, and then we, we're trying to figure out which patient should get the drug and the best guess is to give it to everybody, perhaps focusing a bit on higher-risk patients, to go from there to being able to understand the subgroups that benefit without slicing and dicing data and all the risks of type 1 and type 2 errors, to get biological, environmental, and other characterization that lets us target therapy. Even looking at genetic modification of responses, the so-called pharmacogenomic areas, to do all that and get it up and running across the country to make you know, Medicare a more successful and modern and vibrant uh, enterprise, to make sure that as we expand the coverage of drugs, we give them to the right people, for example. Yeah. To do all that is not something where you have to wait 10 to 12 years to get one or two prizes. If we got on with it, the benefits start immediately. That's what's exciting about the current era of medical science. This this blurring of basic translational and clinical science and the acceleration of, of the movement of ideas and inventions and innovations along that, that spectrum is what has such huge potential to transform healthcare and uh, to give our country and our healthcare system uh, a real rocket boost. So for me, um, well, our, our lens here is, is major prizes. The, the real prize is to have a better healthcare system that gives better outcomes for patients and to have a better lens on some of the things we can do to improve population health. I absolutely agree because it actually comes down to the health of the population rather than the prize. But as you, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, um, winning these prizes um, is an indicator of the, the strength of research. I would just, I just do want to give a shout out to the Gardner Foundation. Uh, if you think back, this was a very un-Canadian initiative back in the 50s to recognize prizes abroad. And uh, the fact that they continue to give this prize and that 
you know, the vast majority of winners are international, uh, speaks to you know, the country as a world player with a, with a big vision for excellence. And I just wish that vision for excellence could be translated into how we support research. And if it was, I think great things could happen. I agree. I think you've given us a uh, you know a lot to think about. It's not just obviously about the funding, which um, we know needs a major boost in this country, but it's also how we spend it. So I really appreciate um, that you've taken the time to talk about that today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. David Naylor, Professor of Medicine and former President of the University of Toronto. To read the analysis article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <music>